as you turn in your Bible today to John chapter 11, near the end of the chapter, I have a question for you. What's the most unbelievable thing you've ever seen in your life? Now, every now and then on the television, they'll have these shows about scenes and unbelievable things captured on video. You may have seen some of them. People now capture stuff that I reckon 10, 15, 20, certainly 30, 35 years ago, people weren't able to capture. Now, there's a little device called the cell phone that has made that possible, right? People capture all kinds of unbelievable stuff on their cell phone. There's an event that breaks out, something that's about to happen, and it's very easy for most people, at least a younger crowd, to pull out their cell phone. If a fight breaks out in public, pull out the cell phone. There's a wreck that happens, they pull out their cell phone. There's an altercation or a disagreement. Somebody's hiding in the corner and they got their cell phone out. Athletic events. Even though it's being broadcast worldwide on international television, somebody's there with their phone out. And they're going to capture it on video. What's the most unbelievable thing you remember ever seeing? Well, I have things in my mind that I've seen that are unbelievable. Some I can share, some I can't, you know. Uh, Just this, in my short life of almost 46 years, I think I've seen some pretty unbelievable stuff. You may have. I'm sure you have. I'm sure when I asked that question a while ago, what's the most unbelievable thing you've ever seen? Something popped in your head. I don't know what it was for you. So many different things that you could say. The scene that we have here at the end of verse 44 in John chapter 11 is an unbelievable scene. Now let me tell you what was happening. You, you know what happened. You know what John 11 is about. John 11 is the, the raising of Lazarus. He wasn't just sick, y'all. He wasn't just, he wasn't just at the point of death. Now listen, Lazarus was dead. Deader than a wedge. Deader than a doornail, deader than four o'clock in the morning. He was dead. There was no chance whatsoever of him coming back to life until Jesus stepped on the scene. And Jesus stepped on the scene, and Jesus did the impossible. Now, can you imagine that crowd standing there that, that day? I guarantee you this was the most unbelievable, most astonishing thing that they had ever laid eyes on. Even more so than the crowd maybe that was there at the feeding of the 5,000. I doubt that there were even, with the exception of the disciples, there probably was no one there because that took place up in Galilee. Now this is down in Judea. This is south of Jerusalem, actually where they were. Two different regions Two different groups, 
But up to this point in the ministry of Jesus, the public ministry of Jesus, nothing like this, nothing as spectacular. He had raised dead people back to life before, but not not people that had been dead four days. And in the minds of the spectators, in the minds of the apostles even, this was absolutely unbelievable. And it's interesting what we read here in John chapter 11. If you'll look there with me in verse 45, notice what we, we read. Then many of the Jews, this is right after the miracle. The miracle took place in verse 44. He that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes. Jesus said, loose him and let him go. So they did. And here's this dead man that's now alive. Fully alive, fully alive, fully walking, fully free. What would you do at that point? What would be your response? (laughs) We see the response here. Verse 45. Then many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did, they believed on him. But some of them went their ways to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus had done. Verse 47, then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council and said, What do we? For this man doeth many miracles. If we let him alone, all men will believe on him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So this morning I want to talk to you on the subject. Is Jesus worth the risk? Is Jesus worth the risk? When you read the Gospel of John, listen carefully, you soon find out that the whole theme of the Gospel of John, and we've said this umpteen thousand times in our long history with this book here, going through it, what's the theme of the Gospel of John? You're like, I can't remember. The theme of the Gospel of John is believe. Believe. You see that word over and over and over and over again in the gospel. You see, the whole purpose of John's gospel record was to present the claims of Christ in such a way as to convince people to believe on him. Let me read John 20, verse 31. Listen carefully. You can turn there if you want to, but listen carefully. John wrote these, And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. In other words, he's saying Jesus did a lot of stuff that's not written in my gospel account. But he said, these things are written, verse 31, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. John flat out strictly says, now let me tell you, the reason I wrote this, the reason the Holy Spirit inspired me to write this was to convince you to believe. Whoever the readers were, wherever this gospel found itself, John said, I know that the Spirit of God laid it upon me to pin all this down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. People would read what Jesus said, they'd read what Jesus did, and it would be to them unbelievable. But it was absolutely true, every single stitch of it. Surely somebody who said the things Jesus said did the things Jesus did. Surely he really is God. He's the Lord, the only one. And man, I'm going to put my faith, my belief in him and him alone. That's the purpose of the Gospel of John. 
Notice what he says in verse 21, verse 25, chapter 21, verse 25. He said, there also are many other things which Jesus did, which, if they should be written every one, I suppose even the world itself <laughs> couldn't contain the books that should be written. John said, what you see written here in my gospel and what we see written in the other gospels and what we see written about Jesus, there's so many other things that he said, so many messages, so many words, so many miracles. He said that if they were all written down, the world couldn't contain the volumes that would be written about him. And I just want to say and echo again and reiterate, my dear friend, that you can't look at the Bible and look at the Gospels and look at Jesus. You can't look at him through the lens of truth and not come up with a logical conclusion about him. You can't, you can't just glibly gloss away and, and, and just throw away what, what the Bible says about him. You've got to do something with it. It's like when you hand a man a grenade with the pin that's already been pulled. You say, well, what does that man do? I don't know. He's got to do something with it. Well, I listen, you know what John just gave us? He just gave us a grenade with the pin already pulled. And you, my friend, listen now, and I, I got to do something with this grenade. You don't have an encounter with Jesus and stay neutral. You don't get hit by a Mack truck and walk away the same. And you don't get hit by the truck of truth through Jesus and not make some sort of decision. We know looking at the words of Jesus, do you know he had 46 different parables? 46 different parables, that's not counting his sermons in the Gospels. He presented 46 different parables. He performed 37 that we can know of and that, and that we can count. 37 different miracles which he performed. The reason the gospel writers were moved by the Holy Spirit to write them all down was to convince people, look at the facts. Look at the truth. It's almost as if we're in a courtroom and he lays it all out before you and, 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 and now we get to the end of the trial. And he, you're the jury. And he says, now look, you have to come up with a verdict. And here's the question of our culture. Is Jesus legit? Here's the question I reckon that's been asked throughout the ages for 2,000 years. Is Jesus legit? What do I mean by that? Is he really Lord? Well, gang, listen. If he isn't, then let's just go home. But if he is, I think we got some changing to do. If he's really Lord, I have some changing to do. If he's really Lord, all of us have to make a decision. Because Jesus is the most revolutionary figure and individual that you'll ever come across. 
And he's the most controversial. And he draws all of us to a point of decision. You cannot, you cannot entertain what he did and what he said and stay the same. So I want to ask you this morning as we proceed in the text. Now listen, is Jesus worth the risk? To some in this passage he was. Now I want you to notice first of all what he says in verse 45. Here's what we learn in that verse. Listen carefully. We learn that the lordship of Jesus is beyond dispute. The lordship of Jesus is beyond dispute. This crowd had just witnessed what to them was impossible. I mean, nobody really, no mere man has the power to raise the dead. Only God in the flesh. So when Jesus performs this unbelievable, radical miracle, all of a sudden the the bystanders that were there that day, they had a choice to make. What were they going to do? Verse 45, many of the Jews then, after the miracle, after what they saw, after what they experienced, (laughs) some of them had watched them place his body in the grave. They watched the sisters wound that grave clothed cloth around his body they watched the strong men roll the stone across the mouth of the grave they knew Lazarus was dead he won't come in back there wasn't you know plan B the doctors had done everything he had been declared dead man when they saw him come out of that grave wasn't a ghost wasn't a spirit wasn't some sort of creature. It wasn't, it wasn't some, some uh, 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 illusion, uh, n- n- no magic or magician or anything made this take place. That's why in that day, uh, black magic and superstition abounded. And they had these priests who would come of false religion and they would mutter these little incantations. And literally, they believed in this. The Jewish culture of that day was very, very superstitious. And they believed that these priests could summon spirits and things like that. And these false priests would, would, would chant and mutter these little incantations. And that's why when Jesus got to the grave, gang, he, he didn't mutter anything. The Bible says he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus! Come forth. He wanted to dispel any doubt whether or not he was a legit priest before God. He wasn't some magician or some some crazy man or lunatic. Only he had the power to do what just happened. And he called that rascal forth, brought him back to life, and here he comes walking out. And the people that saw that, they couldn't just act like it didn't happen. They had to do something with it. And thank God, verse 45, many of them believed on Christ. There was something about it. I mean, it it, it so impressed them that they had no choice but to believe. I like what one writer said. He said they saw it with their eyes. They contemplated it with their minds. They noted its significance. And then they, they drew the only right conclusion. What conclusion is that, preacher? Jesus Christ is Lord. And by the way, he's the only Lord. 
We believe that these were true followers and believers because even the Jewish officials viewed their conversion as a threat to their own hypocritical religious system. And can I tell you, friend, once the Spirit of God opens up your eyes to the truth of Jesus, your only reasonable response is genuine faith in conversion. You and I, friend, can't genuinely see the works and the power of Jesus without coming to the same kind of conclusion that they came to. And that is that Jesus Christ is Lord alone. And because of what I've seen, he's going to be my Lord. So we learn truth number one, the lordship of Jesus is beyond dispute. Listen, you can argue all you want to. You can debate and debate and debate and debate all you want to. But I'm telling you, if you're a sane person, draw insane conclusions from what you read and what you hear in the word of God, you must arrive at the conclusion wrought by the Holy Spirit in your heart that yes, Jesus is the Savior and Lord. That's the only conclusion you can come to. And remain sane. Truth number two. That takes a little different turn. Now listen now. Verse 46. Neutrality loves to play both sides. You're like, preacher, you just said you can't remain neutral. I know, but there's a lot of folks that try. In this crowd here in verse 46, they tried to play the fence and straddle the fence. We've got a lot of fence straddlers in America when it comes to Christianity. We got a lot of cultural Christians, and buddy boy, when the heat gets turned up, they just want to straddle the fence. Well, I, you know, especially in the Bible Belt, Eastern North Carolina, in our churchy culture, here at least where we live. I don't know about where other folks live, I just know about where we live. When's the last time you asked somebody, hey, are you saved? Hey, are you a Christian? When's the last time you asked somebody if they were a Christian and they said, no, I'm not? You see, the average Joe you talk to now, you say, hey, are you a Christian? Oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. Well, you have to define your terms. Because everybody says they're a Christian. Everybody says they believe in Jesus. Everybody's a member. Hey, what what church? Oh, I'm a member of... So-and-so, I've been, uh, hey, oh, by the way, who's the preacher down there? Uh, I, I can't remember his name, but I'm a member down there. They done been through ten preachers since the last time he was there. But that's just how we are, isn't it? That's Eastern North Carolina cultural Christianity. It's interesting to me that in our county, there are about 400 churches. In our population of our county, I'm not, you know, an exact person, you know, I don't know, but but it's over 100,000 people. But on any given Sunday in Wayne County, there are only, out of those 400 churches, there are only about 10,000 people in church. On any given Sunday. So in our Christian county, in our Christian culture, with 400 churches... There are only about 10% of the population in Wayne County on any given Sunday morning that are in church. Yeah, but we say we're saved. Ask your coworker tomorrow. Hey, are you saved? Hey, you got a relationship with Jesus? 
Hey, what do you believe about Christianity? We all have our theories and our ideas. But hey, theories and ideas don't mean deadly. Show me your commitment. Because you had a crowd in verse 45 who says, we believe. And it was real. They couldn't help but believe. (laughs) They made the right conclusion. But verse 46, but some of them went their ways to the Pharisees and they told them what things Jesus had done. Instead of believing and exercising true faith, they kind of huddled together and they ran off to Jerusalem. They went and found the Pharisees in the temple and they got this little group together and they said, "Um, you're not going to believe what he just did. Now why were they saying that? Why did they go straight to the Pharisees? Because they were squealing on Jesus. They knew the Pharisees weren't going to like it. and They knew the Pharisees hated Jesus to the hilt. This crowd's just trying to stir up trouble. They thought they were remaining neutral. You see, the genuine believers in verse 45 are contrasted with these fence straddlers in verse 46. Now listen, this crowd, they saw the same miracle that the converts saw, but they refused to believe. Instead, they ran to the Pharisees to tell them what Jesus had done just to stir up more trouble. They loved to stir the pot. The most astonishing miracle performed by Jesus up to this point But instead of dealing with and responding to the facts and the truth, they missed that whole issue and chose to focus on the controversy of it. Instead of accepting it for what it was, the truth, they wanted to argue over its controversy. Well, uh, we've never seen that before. Uh, We've never, oh, I'm not sure if it was real. I'm not. And so, blah, 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 blah. Controversy, controversy, stirring up mess because they refuse to believe what they saw. Well, I have to explain it first. I have to, it has to make sense in my brain before I'll believe it. Let me tell you something. How do you, I, there are some things I can't explain, but I believe. Well, I'm just not sure it was real. I'm not sure it actually took place. I know he was dead. Now he's alive. I can't figure it out, so I'm not going to believe it. You say, preacher, that's dumb. Yes. Just because you can't figure it all out. Listen, gang, you'll never get to the point where intellectually you'll figure God all out. I'm not saying that you have to have a faith that is baseless. Thank God we don't have an illogical faith. But if you're waiting to figure every single thing out before you believe, you're going to be waiting all your life and you're going to wind up in hell. Our faith has reason. Our faith is reasonable. Our faith has basis. But just because you can't explain and I can't explain every single thing out does not discredit or discount the validity of Jesus Christ. Someone asked Daniel Webster, the noted statesman, Sir, can you comprehend Jesus? He said, No, sir, I cannot comprehend fully Jesus. 
And they said, well, why do you believe in Jesus then if you can't comprehend him? He said, if I, a finite human, could comprehend him who's infinite in God, he said, I would be no greater than he is, and I need a superhuman Savior. Can I tell you, friend, you know what we need? A superhuman Savior. We need somebody bigger than us. We need somebody who's bigger than our mess, bigger than our sin, bigger than our little limitations. Truth is, though, listen, nobody really remains neutral with Jesus. We're either moving closer to the truth or we're moving further away. Luke 12, 51, listen to what Jesus said. Jesus, this man of peace, that's what he's characterized by often, isn't he? Man of peace. Listen to what he said. He said, suppose you that I came to give peace on the earth? He said, "Uh uh-uh, nay. That's a King James word for no. He said, I came to bring division. I came to bring a sword. That's what he said. Oh, whoa, 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 preacher. I thought Jesus came just to bring everybody together. No, friend. Jesus came, listen, to separate the sheep from the goats. Jesus came to call people out. Yes, Jesus ultimately came to God to give his life a ransom for the sins of mankind. But while he was here... He knew truth is divisive. And there are suspe- Nothing's changed. It's part of our DNA as humans to straddle the fence when it comes to truth. And Jesus said, I'm telling you right now, I'm here to make people and force people to choose sides. Get off the fence. You're either, what did he say? You're either for me are against me. You have to conclude something about truth, especially as it relates to Jesus Christ. Neutral you cannot be. Statement number three, listen carefully. True discipleship always involves a risk. Now we're coming down the home stretch. Look at what, what they say in verse 47. Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council. So they got their, their little group together and they said, What do we do? We don't know what to do with Jesus. Hey, for this man does many miracles. Verse 48, if we leave him alone, all men will believe on him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. You know what they were saying? I'll tell you what we could do. We could just not do anything with him. Just leave him alone. And then somebody said, no, bro, we can't do that because if we leave them alone, everybody's going to believe. I mean, you know, you can't, you can't argue with the facts. You can't deny what he, what he did, what he can do. Man, if we just leave them alone, everybody in Israel is going to believe in him ultimately. And then they said, if that happens, then that's going to stir up the Romans and the Roman government, and the Roman army is going to come in, and they're going to invade the land, and they're going to take away us as a nation. They're going to destroy the temple. By the way, they did that, ultimately, right? About 40 years later, they came in, wiped everything to the ground. 
And the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees and the Pharisees put together. They got together in, in this multiple uh, uh, man uh, committee in, in this room. And they were debating on what to do with Jesus. And they said, hey, 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 he's too risky. <laughs> we can't believe in him. We can't endorse him. We can't put our stamp of approval on him. He's too risky. We can't risk our system. We can't risk the temple. We can't risk this man-made religion that we have. You see, they didn't see Jesus as Lord. They saw Jesus as a threat. They plotted to eliminate him because the results of true acknowledgement would have proven too risky. There's a concept in financial investment called risk-reward ratio. Let's calculate the risk versus the reward when it comes to Jesus. You see, true faith and obedience and true discipleship is always risky. And I want you to hang this on your heart, your head, write it down if you want to. A Savior who isn't worthy of life change isn't worthy of belief. Listen. A Savior that's not worthy of us changing our life is a Savior you don't even need to believe in. Because if he's not worth life change, then he's not truly the Lord. So are you willing to change your life? Are you willing to let the Holy Spirit of God work in you to change, bring that change about in your life? What, what, what is it that people really fear risking if they get serious about the Lord? I could go to each one of us in this room and every single one of us could give some answer. You know what? Some folks fear risking a promotion. They know if they get serious about Jesus, they're going to lose something at work because they're going to have to really take a stand. They're gonna, maybe they'll have to cut back their hours. Maybe they'll have to not work on the weekends. Maybe they, they'll, they'll have to, you know, kind of do this and that and just be crystal clear about who they're living for, who they're standing for. And I, I'm just not sure if I want to risk that. I know I can't go up in my company. I can't elevate and change positions if I get serious about Jesus. Some people fear risking social life and peer acceptance. Oh, man, come on, preacher. I, I mean, that's good while we're at church, but I'm talking about what about Saturday night? What about the weekends, man? Come on. What about holidays like Tuesday? What am I going to do then? Who am I going to hang out with? If I really get serious about Jesus, my old buddies don't want me to come around. They're not going to want me to come to eat steaks with them or cheeseburgers. Some people fear risking certain forms of entertainment. Well, there's, I, I can't do that anymore. Some people fear losing fun. Well, man, if I give my life to Christ and get serious about Jesus, I'm not going to have any fun anymore. Hey, let me tell you something. I have more fun by accident as a child of God, that I, I, no, I'm, I'm serious, than I ever had on purpose. Lost. 
Anybody with me? Well, I'm just, I just don't know if I won't ever have any fun anymore if I really get serious about Jesus. Oh, friend, you don't know what fun is. Bless your heart. I love you. You think, you think what the devil has to offer you is, 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 is the epitome of fun? My friend, he wants to drag you to hell. Jesus said, he's the thief. All that liar can do is steal, kill, and destroy. He said, but I'm the only one that came to give you life, and I came to give you life more abundantly. What do you fear risking? What do you fear losing? By getting really serious about Christ. Well, I'm saved, I'm saved, but I just don't know if I want to sell out to him. What are you afraid of? Here's the question for some this morning. For what are you willing to go to hell? Or what are you willing to go to hell for? What are you willing to miss God's perfect smile on your life for? Because at the end of the day and at the end of life, listen carefully, that, 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 that stuff won't hold water. And you'll spend your eternity, for some in this room, you'll spend your eternity in the lake of fire. And you will forever torment yourself in the flames of the lake of fire in your memory. What you chose Jesus over. Christians in this room will live your life with regret because of blown opportunities, wasted days, wasted time because you chose not to get serious about Jesus. I say this to you today. He calls you to a risky faith. He calls you to a risky commitment. He calls you to a risky obedience. He calls you to risky discipleship. And I'm telling you right now, friend, he is worth the risk. So let's end. I got one more point, but we ain't going to talk about it. And here it is. A reje- you, thought, you just lied. You said you weren't going to talk about it. Here it is right here. A rejection of truth puts you on the most slippery slope possible. And that's true. That got on a slippery slope here. Let me give you some questions to close with and to answer. I can't answer these for you. You can't answer them for me. Question number one. Have you exercised your spiritual common sense? Have you come to the only sane conclusion about Jesus? And that is, he's worth it all. He's worth it all. He's worth all your devotion, all your faithfulness, all your commitment. Whatever he wants, it's his. Have you got there yet? Preacher Patrick says it this way, and I love how he says it. That the greatest day in your life is when you come to that little little piece of real estate at the foot of the cross called the will of God. And that's where you're going to live. Have you chosen to camp out there? And to park your RV there? (laughs) And to put your house right there? 
I'm just going to be smack dab in the middle of his will for me. Question number two. Are you living in the land of spiritual neutrality? Some of us are good chameleons. We blend in with whatever crowd we're with. We're with the church crowd. Boy, we look like a church person. If we're with saved folks, we blend in with them. But if not, we blend in wherever we are. Question number three. What are you afraid to risk in order to gain Christ? In order to have his smile on your life? What are you afraid to lose? Final question. Are you somewhere on that slippery slope? (laughs) On that downward spiral? I don't know what decisions you need to make this morning, but here's the truth. The truth has been preached. God has spoken because he speaks through his word. And now it's decision time. I'm going to ask you, everyone in this room, to make some kind of a decision, whatever it is. It may be for you to pray this prayer, Lord, help me to get closer to you now. Lord, help me to evaluate the areas of my life where you know, Father, I fear rejection, I fear losing something, I fear missing out. Deal with me right there, Father, and help me. For some precious ones this morning, you need to say, Lord, I come to Jesus. (laughs) Lord, in my brokenness and in my sin, I turn from that, and I turn only to you. Save me. I believe you are who you said you are. For some this morning, you need to come recommit your life. You need to nail some things down and stop trying to straddle the fence. You need to quit playing games. Get out of the merry-go-round of neutrality. And come clean with God. And let's get serious about him. Every head bowed, every eye closed across this auditorium.